Welcome to the Faces Podcast. We're a Christian and Muslim charity working to build resilience in faith communities against child sexual exploitation and other forms of harm. We'll be talking about what faith and interfaith work means to us and how we embed an inclusive and authentic approach throughout our work. Hello and welcome to the Faces Podcast. Uh, Today uh, I'm with Peter and Melissa and we're discussing the Bloom Review. Um, which is a report put together um, by Colin Bloom and um, is he was appointed independent faith engagement advisor uh, before COVID uh, to come up with this report on how government can work better with faith groups and also to look at the benefit that faith groups bring to society. And so he's produced this report. It's a fairly lengthy report. Um, with a number of summaries and on faces we're always looking at how faith uh, impacts things and so it's really good for us to have a chance to look at this and and discuss it together um, and um, I'm going to say it's become out of um, a whole discussion that came from I think it was Boris Johnson initiated some of this um, and uh, appointed Colin to deliver uh, on it and so um the foreword to this report has some interesting bits in it, sets a bit of a background to it. And I think what's important to say at the outset is this report has been commissioned by someone in government, uh, paid for probably by people in government. And and so it is a government response um, to faith groups, uh, an, an olive branch, as it, as it were, uh, which has involved research with certain faith groups, mainly during COVID, which might have shaped it slightly. Um, but this report um, aims to bridge the gap between government and um, faith communities and following, uh, I think it was Tony Blair's political advisor years ago, is reported to have said, we don't do God. Uh, this report is an attempt to try and do God uh, in government. And so that's the bold claims of it. Uh, I've listened to a podcast with Tim Ferron um, where he interviews Colin Bloom on this and and here's some of the background around this um, and some of the thoughts behind it. And it seems to be a, a, an attempt to be an incredibly positive move forward. Um, it has lots of elements, positive and negative in it. Um, but one of the cries that Colin and Tim made on their podcast was to really say um, there's a need for to learn the language of religion by government. And that's really missing. And the government needs to become more faith literate. At the same time, they're saying that faith communities need to understand government a bit better, too. And so there's a bit of a dialogue that needs to happen between the two. That's one of the hearts that uh, Colin said was in this report. Uh, We'll dig into the report and see if it's there as well today. Um, But looking at this, um, I I think there's something I'd like to start off with, and that is um, in the foreword, there's some definitions and um, some of those definitions um, I think are rather interesting um, mainly because I'm wondering who defines them. Is it faith communities that define them or government uh, that define them? And uh, this is a statement that Colin Bloom makes uh, in the beginning of this. Um, There are three types of believers. The first are true believers who regardless of their faith are sincere, devout and peaceful. Government can and should work with true believers. Uh, 
The second are non-believers, who like true believers are generally sincere, peaceful, and decent. True believers and non-believers are part of the solution to improving society. The third are the make-believers. Make-believers are generally the cause of most of the problems that government encounters in the faith space. Make-believers are often motivated by ego, money, prestige, or power, and abuse their position to promote themselves or their causes, clothe themselves with religion to give them divine legitimacy. Make-believers are a problem both for government and for the communities they claim to represent. While this report touches on make-believers, the most important points focus on true believers, but this is a review on how the government engages with faith people of faith, and places of worship. The review is much needed, and its timing, after what we hope is the end of the pandemic, could not be sooner. This is the first time that faith has been reviewed in this way, and the first time in living memory that an administration has bravely asked, are we properly engaging with people of faith? And I think that's a good starting point for our discussion. Um, and um, do, what do you think of the definitions that are used at the beginning of this, um, but also how government engages with faith? And I think that's a good starting point for the whole report. They're catchy groupings that he uses. I'm not sure that it's really, as you say, it's, it's part of the problem is how you do it, who, do, who defines who's who, who's where. It would be very easy to to do that very cynically. I have to say, I mean, I was just reflecting on the title of the report and its origin, Does Government Do God? Because actually, I think that's quite helpful, even in looking at those two, uh, those categories that Bloom has introduced. Alistair Campbell, the um, who was the communications person for Tony Blair and the Labour government, he, he, he used that phrase, we don't do God, when people were trying to put Blair in a pigeonhole of identity faith. Now, the reality is they did do God, because I was just listening to him, to Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell, talking about the the way they worked bringing peace in Northern Ireland, where they treated faith very seriously. Tony Blair, as... Uh, well, married to a woman who later took on her f- the same faith. Um, Tony Blair did did faith very seriously, but he didn't use it to pigeonhole himself. He used it to try and understand where the various parties in Northern Ireland were, and actually it was really helpful. But I think had you used that set of uh, types that Colin Bloom has introduced you wouldn't have resolved the Northern Ireland issue nearly as quickly and nearly as well because you would have dismissed them too quickly. And so I don't actually find it a very helpful set of set of ideas. I think it's very helpful he has tried to engage with how different people approach faith, but I don't think the his result is very helpful. So I hope that doesn't find any feet. I agree. <laughs> Personally. I agree that it's, um, I don't think it's very helpful at all. And just to add to what you've said, um, the, the idea that someone can be a perfect person, a perfect true believer or a non-believer uh, and that everyone else is the troublemaker is silly. Um, you know, people can be believers, people can have faith or be atheists and still yeah. make harmful and problematic decisions and, and have problems 
behaviors that cause harm in society. So to box people into those three categories, I think doesn't make sense. People no. can have true and sincere faith and still be influenced wrongly or still make um, mistakes or, you know, intentionally, well, in uh, full intended uh, decision that cause harm. And um, that doesn't make them an, uh, a make believer. You know, they could still be a believer in that sense. All of that said, to actually understand how faith influences people is really important. And that's one of the things I think is really important for us as faces, because everybody does their faith differently. You know, my, my favourite question is, what does your faith mean to you? Which is all about trying to understand a person's relationship with their faith and how they how they approach it. And so that would be how I start off a lot of relationships when I'm trying to see how I work with that person in relation to their faith. And and I think um, my, my thought on this is you've got, uh, as, a, as a church leader, um, I've got lots of people who approach their faith, uh, with some with maturity, some with real immaturity in the way they approach it. And they've got a lot of things going on there. Um, does you know if we're going to look at true believers as one set camp uh, those people are true believers but they haven't applied a lot of that to their lives um yeah. in some ways that's a discipleship issue for churches is the government going to get involved in discipleship to help <laughs> uh, sort out the difference and i think that that's part of it um that that makes it a little bit difficult of where the boundaries of some of these things are and the definitions of them and and who calls those definitions um so, yeah, I, th I think this report um, has um, a number of recommendations, 22 different recommendations uh, that it brings out. And um, many of them are, are good common sense, uh, a faith advisor to a sort of department that will bat on behalf of people of faith into government, uh, making sure that the government language is faith sensitive and, and is open to people of faith. Um, I think that's a really big positive. Um, the other recommendations, um, you know, go go further down. Some of them tackling things within faith groups, uh, which might be a little bit harder reading um, than than the first one. Um, I think the other thing is government departments all um, be, being trained. Everyone in, in government employment uh, being trained in faith literacy. That would be very, very helpful to many, many communities. Um, the other one that, that stands out as a big positive is councils coming up with a charter. Uh, each council having a charter by the end of this year is a recommendation, if this is adopted, um, to, to actually um, have a charter for working with faith groups. So, so not just on a national level, but it would work at a local level as well. And so... Some of those things are the big positives um, going forward. Um, but there also are some there that uh, might make tougher reading. Um, tackling forced marriage seems to be an issue that they're very concerned with. Um, issues of extremism, uh, issues in prisons, and some of those issues in the education. Uh, but one of the things that they have said is that out of the protected characteristics Faith seems to be the Cinderella, the kind of poor equalities area that doesn't seem to be addressed by government as well as some of the others. And they really want to see that moved forward. 
Um, so I, I think that there's some of those positives in there. Um, I don't know what you guys think, whether you think they are positives or, or not. One of the the interesting ones um, I thought in the recommendations was for the Sharia compliant um, loans for university students. Yep. Um, you know, that's massive if that can be implemented in a in a truly Sharia compliant and practical way. Um, because it's definitely obviously a barrier for many um, Muslims in terms of using uh, traditional sort of student finance to be able to access university. We know how much accessing university level education and how, how much challenge there is there for uh, low income families anyway. So that would be huge if that's something that can be um, implemented. The other was um, in terms just on faith literacy, I think within the um, talk around prisons and, and probation was the importance of being able to identify indicators of extremism um, for chaplaincy and, and volunteers so that conversions that often happen in prison are essentially checked for uh, radicalisation, um, which is framed in very much a protect society way rather than protect the individual, I felt. But I think the, the problem with that, again, is the definition and who defines the boundaries of what should be considered a quote unquote Islamist extremist um, indicator or not. Um, you know, it shouldn't be the sim- things that we've heard um, in a similar kind of context in terms of prevent in schools. It shouldn't be people praying or people observing their religion in a more strict way to be seen as a, a yeah. sign of radicalization. So it's really important who defines what that is and who delivers that faith literacy uh, and that kind of training around indicators and things like that. Otherwise, it it doesn't do the job. And it, and it just isolates people further, which they've identified is, is one way that people can be uh, yeah. vulnerable to extremism. I think that's right. I mean, I, I agree with that faith literacy. Faith literacy improved. We need people, etc. I, But as Melissa said, I mean, everybody will train and teach people with what with respect to their own position whereas actually we have 101 and a million more approaches to how we do faith and actually one person giving that faith literacy training certainly makes things better but actually they deliver it according to where they are Yeah, and 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 I think um, you know that that's a key thing. I think as someone was saying to me a, a while back, we almost should refer to Christianity as the Christianities, yeah, because yeah. there's so many different types of Christians, um, and one size certainly does not fit all. And there are also different uh, thoughts in Islam too. And and so one person trying to say this is how this is uh, to a council. Um, it doesn't quite cover it and so it's it's how it's done really it's how this report's delivered yeah. um where the i think a lot of things will be nutted out um if it's ac- accepted i mean it, it's very interesting in the in the extremism they used the the example of Christ, in christian extremism of britain first a far right group with whom i've had very close and prolonged engagement including dialogue with the leadership 
because we took seriously the fact they claimed a Christian faith, and yet it was totally different in its outcome to to mine. I had to take seriously that claim. They could very easily be described as in in Bloom's third category of of uh, faith make believers, you know. Mm. But actually, I wouldn't put them there. They, they, they were very. They are very close to the the loyalists of Northern Ireland in their very, very fundamentalist approach to faith that that, that is totally unwilling to listen to any other other view. And and yet, there's a genuineness in there that that I can't deny. Yeah. So that that title, that little category, does not do it justice, and to, it just dismisses it as being irrelevant. I, what I find interesting in the whole piece on extremism is that they say, well, we're not actually saying terribly much more about extremism from within the Muslim community. Government's done lots about this, but what we are doing is looking at Hindu extremism and Sikh extreme extremism, and they spend a lot, a lot of time, particularly on Sikh extremism. And both those, those are very, very live issues. And it's almost as if they're denying their, he's denying his own argument, saying, well, actually, the most important thing is Islamic extremism. But actually, no, I'm seeing lots and lots and lots of this. And I know, and you know, Nigel, that actually those two things are really, really top on the agenda at the moment in terms of understanding. Yeah. And... I don't think Colin Bloom really does himself justice there by by the way he argues that one. Yeah, and 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 I think this is the the thing with belief is what belief is a trust that people put their trust in, um, and yeah. and the, the report does make mention of of that fact, but it says that it's bit you know that it talks about religion as being a place where a lot of those things are based, um, but people have other beliefs outside of that. And the four fundamental British values, um, it, it says, as taught in our schools, are democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and mutual respect and tolerance for those of different faiths and beliefs. Now, those seem to be the the commandments of this report that seem to uh, um, uh, transcend everything. Um, and and I think that that's interesting that. Um, those are almost taken as as gospel um, in in how this is approached um, as as the main base of it, and and I think that those beliefs, um, I you know I, I think um, are, are very interesting when you look around the world, and and how those um, fit in place because uh, the rule of law um is is an interesting one in some cultures and some settings that I've come across in Africa and places and you should just sort of think there's a lot of these things that are are very interestingly um as the basis of all this engagement with faiths and I don't know if you've got any comments or thoughts on that it's almost like we're rediscovering ancient history they, they fundamental British values were about seven about came up about seven or eight years ago but he's actually think I've not heard them mentioned for the last five or six. I think I think it's a very um, it's a very good kind of slogan. Very very compact thing to say. You know, this is what we're teaching children. Yes, democracy is important. Rule of law, 
and, and all of those things, mutual respect and, and the others. But I do think ultimately it's very much feels like, um, especially when as a Muslim, you're kind of it's almost implied that we don't have the same sort of values, these British values, because we're not British enough. Um, and it's implied that, uh, you know, Brits are better and that we are kind of have these fundamental values that the rest of the world is uh, mm-hmm. should kind of uphold, but doesn't, and we're better than them because of it. Um, so I feel like there's always that kind of um, underlying sort of that undertone or overtone um, when we talk about British values. And also, yes, it, it's a great thing to aspire to how well we do it, how well our laws actually um, are just and are fair. And, you know, uh, when people go through the legal systems, are they treated fairly um, and with equality throughout? And how much do we actually respect other people? Um, you know, when we know the levels of discrimination that different groups face in Britain. Um, so, yeah, great to aspire to them, but I think we just have to be honest about how well they really are implemented in society. The other thing um, I thought would be good to mention as we're talking about the report is the part on marriage and about non-legally binding religious marriages. Um, And the report talks a lot about the the risks of this and that people don't know that their marriage might not be legally binding and what this can mean in, in cases of divorce and death and inheritance and things like that. But what I thought was interesting is there's not a mention of is there a way that these um, religious ceremonies can be recognised as legally binding, or people can opt in to have them uh, become uh, a legal marriage while doing their religious ceremony rather than having to do a separate ceremony, which is probably often the case why people don't do them, uh, as in don't have it registered. Um, so I just wondered, kind of, you know, if that that's a thought that can be added into the mix. The other thing we haven't spoken about was the um, the, the part on the the army. Um, so I don't know if we want to come back around to that as well in a bit. I, I totally agree with you. The the piece on on marriage again seems to be lacking a lot of uh, thinking about possibilities. Um, I think we've got to do some serious thinking about that. Bearing in mind where the Church of England is at the moment and what the government is saying to the Church of England. Um, anyhow, yeah, I I th- I just wanted to. So there was a couple of quotes he made. I mean, picking up something we've said, it's not the responsibility of government or authorities to teach, to decide which religious, ideological, philosophical beliefs are correct. He's recognising that. It is the responsibility to protect rights, etc. But then more, more interesting, I think, in, we should note... And he's been talking about the training of police in um, in this area. And he's saying we should note the limitations of training the police to recognise extremism and so on when they are not also equipped to recognise the valid public expressions of religion and belief. And I think that he's recognising a very, very, very good uh, point there that actually... That you're looking, you're trying to train people to recognise indicators of extreme, whereas actually you are failing to help people see the good that is there and the valid that is there and the nature of the expression of what that faith does in a person. It just says to me that however much we try, <laughs> this is a very difficult task. And it's it's about, it's about, I think, more than anything, it's, it's about 
good religious literacy will rely upon building good, trusting relationships between people in authority and people of faith so that you can have dialogue around what this is rather than make fixed rules and easy, easy indicators. It's the sort of relationship that you have, Nigel, in your work in another, with another hat on. Mm. It's the sort of relationship that I have. It's about helping people see and discern the, the fine-tuning of these things, which actually, in the end, is everything in deciding whether something's appropriate or not. And I think it also drives the, the question um, of making people think of what they believe and why they believe it. And I think a large part of society in the UK doesn't think about their beliefs or why they believe those beliefs. And I think no. that's going to drive this question if this is adopted into government departments and other places. Yes, it's a good start. He needs to go back and do some more work. <laughs> and I think there's always going to be more that we could say about, you know, there's lots of different points covered um, in the report and there could be so much more discussion that we have. Um, I just wanted to comment on um, the section um, about the army and the disproportionate numbers of Muslims that are in the, that serve in the British forces. Um, I think it was something like 0.8% are Muslim, um, which is, if we look at the, the general population, it's about 6.4%. Um, and there was talk there of how uh, the sense of belonging among British forces is very strong and that there should be more done to recruit and retain um, people from minority religious backgrounds into the army. And um, for me, the biggest thing that that um, that I felt as I read it was that actually a lot of us do not support uh, war efforts that happen in other countries and military interventions that happen in other countries. And when I say us, I mean people in Britain, not not speaking as a Muslim only. Um, and so I suppose it, there should be a delicate kind of conversation that happens around this in not trying to imply that if you don't want to join the army or if you don't um, support the actions that we see happening in, in foreign countries, that that somehow, again, reduces your sense of Britishness or belonging um, and that people may have very valid reasons to not want to join the army based in religion or not. Um, you know, we see in, in the previous section, I think, under extremism, a lot of quotes from different faith uh, scriptures talking about um, not killing other people and treating people like your brother and things like that. Um, that would be very hard to do if you were uh, a soldier, you know. So um, there's kind of a bit of uh, a bit of a balance balancing game that that needs to happen, I suppose. And just being able to view things from a more holistic kind of perspective, rather than um, making a bold statement that we should simply just recruit people more. Yeah, and I, and I think it's that that kind of allegiance. Are you you know, are you, is your allegiance to your religion or to your career in the army or your career in something else um, comes comes into play a little bit, doesn't it? And and uh, a lot, <laughs> and 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 I think that's um, you know that that's where you get into some of these things on faith, where actually it is a belief and it is important to people and vital to people. And it's not just a, a take it or leave it as it's often treated, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And actually, we want to, we were saying about respecting um, different religions and things like that. But again, that's almost a, a definition game of what do you mean by respect? Because actually, often we're then asked to kind of bend what those beliefs and restrictions and, 
and things mean. So yeah. So so I think there's a lot more to to look at in this report. There's a lot more to discuss and and also to watch its progress and see whether it is adopted or not uh, going forward. Um, but the, this question of allegiance is coming up this weekend because um, there's a coronation of the king. And um, in in the coronation of the king, the, there's an offer for the public to make a de- declaration of allegiance to um, to King Charles and his successors, um, which is normally something reserved for the House of Lords, I think it is. Um, but that's been open to the public. And um, I, I just thought, wow, it's quite an interesting one. I'm sort of left wondering, you know, where, where do I declare my allegiance? <laughs> do I? Um, do I not? Um, and I've, I've chatted with many people and there's a lot of things in the press as well about this issue of, of allegiance. And I think this report um, brings some of that to the fore as well. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts along those lines, Melissa and Peter. Melissa, go for it. <laughs> mm. Do you know, funnily enough, um, I can't remember the exact conversation I was having with my kids yesterday. Um, we were, I think we were using the, the King's coronation as a, an example of something. And, then, you know, and one of them sort of said, I don't really care. Um, and that, you know, generally we, we, we're not, we're very far from ever being royalist and it's not something that we get sort of excited about or kind of party for um and so for me yes the idea of pledging allegiance is um it, you know it wouldn't be something that we'd entertain um but also my daughter sort of said um, when we challenged her in terms of actually uh having respect for leaders and authorities and then there is sort of some religious basis for that as well like whoever your king is there is a level of um respect and and sort of you know, acknowledgement that comes with that. Um, and this is a kind of on a lighter note now, but her 13-year-old response was, yeah, but he doesn't do anything anyway. <laughs> and so maybe there's a level of education and awareness that could build this, um, you know, idea of of celebration and allegiance and all of those kinds of positive things that, that we see uh, around, you know, raising the education and awareness of people about what the king's place is, what the royal... Um, Know, different royal figureheads do um, and then that might I suppose bring people more around to the conversation yeah um, Peter? interesting interesting I I mean I I listen to what you say Melissa and, and actually you know one possible response to what you said is well you're not a good Brit but I know you are you're a good citizen you're a good community member you know that your statement there has got nothing to do with your role and value and commitment to the community of which you're part. And I think we've got to be a bit wise about how we do this because actually we could be setting up really quite difficult, quite divisive pieces if if we're not careful. Mm. I mean, I am I'm broadly in favour of the royal family. I mean, it saddens me actually to walk around Luton and barely see any any Union Jacks up or any responses, you know. Um, I've had a good experience of of of, of royalty in, in, in different ways, not least shaking the king's hand when he came to Luton a few months ago. But I think it's it's very this one potentially could be quite divisive. Unfortunately, because of some really some careless, I think, use of of, of thinking about how to do this, uh, how to do this. Um, I mean, I should watch tomorrow. I should be, I should be, you know, 
moderately enthusiastic, but actually, does it make you me good any better a Brit than than you? No, it doesn't. You know, and this is this is something we've got to be really attentive to at the moment. I think. And I think one other thing we can't miss in this whole conversation is the very real um, impact of the British Empire historically and for a lot of people that their yeah. um, heritage and where their families have come from and where their you know, parents have come from or where they you know, uh, were born. Um, and that none of that is positive. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a big, um, there's, there's a, a whole other side to it essentially for why people have the thoughts yeah. they do some some are just kind of don't really care don't feel either, either this way or that way about it but then there are obviously really strong feelings um um based in you know real life events um on both sides so. yeah and, and interestingly just listening on a couple of occasions now to um the black member of cabinet um or the shadow cabinet david lammy um the MP for for Tottenham, saying actually he will be supportive, but his support comes because during the riots in twenty after the riots in twenty eleven, he had visitors, political visitors who came once and went away and barely did anything. But the king came, and the king came back, and the king came back five times with people, with projects, with money, and he showed his commitment to that community. So actually, you know, the the legacy of 900 years of, ro- of a raw, royalty or whatever is not the issue here. It's actually what does this person do for a community? What's this person done for me? What's my relationship with him? What what good is he doing in 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 the community of which I'm a part? And for David Lammy, that was very real. And and I would say, you know, I would love to see the king taking up a little bit more of some of the things he talked about in conversations with those of us who met him in Luton five months ago. It would be a great opportunity for us. And I think he might do that if he had the chance, but who knows? We'll see. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to remain on the fence for now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you both. It's been a, a good conversation and a lot of the issues are very, very live issues around the country and uh, good to talk through this report with with both of you as well and hopefully we'll we'll see what happens from it thanks Nigel thank you